Good evening. Sorry to keep you here so long tonight. I had hoped that tonight I would be coming out to tell you that baseball was coming back in 1995. And for a good while this evening, I thought that that might well be the case. Unfortunately, the parties have not reached agreement. Players and owners still remain apart on their differences. Clearly, they are not capable of settling this strike without an umpire. That was President Bill Clinton speaking to the White House press corps in February 1995 after an all-night session in the West Wing, trying to bring MLB and the Players Union together to end the strike. The 94-95 MLB strike was an inflection point for baseball, and it brought life-changing consequences for Ken Caminiti. It was the best thing that could have happened. I came here with the feeling that I was wanted, that I was special. The manager and coaching staff are the best I've ever been associated with. In Houston, it was like I was going to be traded every year. The rumors never stopped and I let it get to my head. It was brutal. I left some good friends there, Bags and Biggio in particular, but I don't care what happens to management or ownership. There was never an attempt to stop the rumors and I don't think the Astros ever believed I was capable of these numbers. That was what Ken Caminiti, then a member of the San Diego Padres, told Ross Newhan of the Los Angeles Times in September 1996 as he was finishing up in MVP season. Despite the rugged Marlboro Man appearance, Caminiti was a sensitive person who was prone to feeling slighted. He was fiercely loyal, and he didn't feel that was mutual throughout his time with the Astros. Ken felt the Astros never really believed that he could become the star that he eventually became. On the contrast, Padres manager Bruce Bochy, general manager Kevin Towers, and owner John Moores consistently acknowledged just how much they loved and appreciated Ken not only as a ball player, but as a man. This is Secondary Lead, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti, a 10-part series on the life and career of one of the most important baseball players of the 80s and 90s. If you like this show, please click subscribe and leave a rating or a review. And now, Chapter 5, Houston Interrupted. Hopes were high for Ken Caminiti and the Houston Astros heading into the 1993 season. Their young lineup was a year older and more experienced, and they had addressed their biggest weakness in shoring up the pitching staff. After years of cost-cutting, the Astros suddenly opened up their purse strings to compete. It was not a coincidence that the Astros began spending money after owner John McMullen sold the franchise to Drayton McLean in November 1992. McLean made his fortune as a grocery and food store warehouse magnate eventually selling his company in 1990 to friend and tennis partner Sam Walton. The money from that sale is how McLean funded his $119 million acquisition of the Houston Astros. In December 92, the Houston Astros claimed third baseman Chris Donalds off waivers from the Florida Marlins. The 27-year-old had hit well in the minor leagues for the New York Mets before the Marlins took him in the 1992 expansion draft in November. After some initial awkwardness, Caminiti and Donalds hit it off as teammates. I think when I first got over there, he kind of had kind of an adversarial relationship. He was thinking I was coming over there to steal his spot. And I was kind of like, dude, I'm not stealing your spot. I got news for you. Once we got over that hump a little bit, 
Um, it made things a lot more comfortable for both of us. Houston began the 1993 season well, but the team performed below expectations. The Astros were still a young team and figuring things out. In fact, the 30-year-old Caminiti was the third oldest player on the roster. The team sat above the 500 mark for most of April and May, but struggled to keep pace with Atlanta and San Francisco in the NL West. Meanwhile, Houston's number one overall pick in 1992, Phil Nevin, was one of the hottest prospects in baseball, and the Astros placed him all the way in AAA Tucson to begin the 93 season. Despite Ken's success, he had to feel the pressure of the young phenom in AAA poised to take his job away, as well as the threat from Donalds sitting on the Houston bench. On May 31st, the Montreal Expos were in Houston to begin a three-game series. The Expos were a force in the NL East that year, and this series would be a test for the young Astros. Steve Finley gave Houston a 2-1 lead with a sacrifice fly in the bottom of the eighth inning, and Astros closer Doug Jones went to the mound to nail down the win. Will Cordero doubled with two outs to put the tying run in scoring position, and Expos manager Felipe Alou sent Frank Bullock to the plate as a pinch hitter. Jones got ahead no balls in one strike, but Bullock connected on the next pitch and lofted a soft fly to shallow left field, which seemed destined to fall in for a base hit. Caminiti ranged with his back to home plate and dove for the ball, making a spectacular over-the-shoulder grab to win the game. I guess I'd have to say it's my number one catch because it saved the game, Caminiti told reporters of the play that was quickly and uncreatively dubbed the catch. You never know with Ken. He makes plays that normal third basemen don't make. He should get the gold glove every year. I was in awe, said Luis Gonzalez, who had a great view of the play from his position in left field. That play was one that you had to see to believe, and while video of it assuredly exists somewhere, it is not available on the internet, and it is a play that is largely lost to time. Overall, 1993 was not a strong season on the field for Caminiti. He missed some time with various injuries that weren't serious enough to land him on the DL, and he hit only 262. The Astros finished 85-77, and 77, their first winning record since 1989, but that put them in third place behind Atlanta and San Francisco, who both won over 100 games that year. Bill Wood was fired as GM and replaced by Bob Watson. Art Howe was fired as well, and Terry Collins would replace him as Astros manager. Caminiti was again the center of trade rumors during the offseason, with the Astros being engaged in talks with the Minnesota Twins about a potential swap for outfielders Shane Mack and relief help. But the deal never happened. Caminiti and Donalds got along well, and at some point during the 1993 or 94 season, Ken was starting to do some research on using steroids. He approached Donalds and asked him what he knew. Donalds supplied him with the phone number of a well-known supplier of steroids to Major League Baseball players, New York Mets clubhouse employee Kirk Radomski. He was, he was curious about it, so I just said, well, I, I got a guy that I know that can answer your questions for you. That was that was kind of the end of the conversation. I, I don't want to, you know, I want Ken to get steered the wrong way by anybody. So this other guy was, you know, a professional bodybuilder and knew pretty much, you know, I knew he had had, had some relationships with other guys in the league. So, you know, there was a, a familiarity there with him. At this point, things get a little murky. Chris Donalds told an investigation led by former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell that Caminiti eventually told him that he was going to try steroids. 
Donalds told secondary lead that he does not know if Kamenetti was receiving steroids from Radomski, only that he gave Ken his phone number. There is no evidence that Kirk Radomski ever provided Ken Kamenetti with steroids, but Ken was at least beginning to do his due diligence. The 1993 offseason had monumental consequences for Ken Kamenetti. First, the collective bargaining agreement signed in 1990 expired on December 31st, and the Players Union and Major League Baseball sat down for contentious negotiations. As the longest tenured Houston Astro, Ken was the team's player representative to the union and was heavily involved in these talks. His assistant player representative was none other than Chris Donalds. As the union and owners went at it at the negotiating table, Ken made a separate, life-altering decision. Houston management and some of Ken's teammates were growing increasingly worried about his drinking. Most had started to calm down, but at 30 years old, Cammy was still partying hard. Showing up late for spring training games in 1988 and the DWI with Biggio in 1989 could be written off as youthful transgressions, but it was hard to ignore anymore. He still did a good job of hiding his problems from most people, but to those who knew him best, it was evident he had a problem. Virtually every night on road trips, he would be out drinking. One time after a day game at Wrigley Field against the Chicago Cubs, Caminiti went out and after several drinks got a tattoo of a panther on his left calf. When he returned home, Nancy made him sleep on the couch for three nights as a punishment. It wasn't just drinking though for Caminiti, but painkillers and cocaine as well. His playing style and determination to stay on the field when hurt led him to abuse the painkillers that were commonplace in sports at the time. Caminiti traveled with a duffel bag full of supplements and pills and was famous among teammates for mixing Caminiti cocktails. Throughout 1993, Ken would wake up in the morning and tell himself that today was the day he was going to quit drinking, only to be back in the bars at night. A man who had such an iron will and truly wanted to beat addiction was fighting a losing fight on his own. In 2005, Craig Biggio told ESPN's Buster Only, for somebody who has an addiction, was that type of personality, baseball is a dangerous environment. It's a tough life, and you have to know who your friends are, who the leeches are, because they'll find you. Ken fell into a vicious cycle that claims many ballplayers, taking amphetamines nicknamed greenies by ballplayers to get up for games, and then drinking and taking painkillers afterwards to unwind. Mixed with alcohol and a cocaine habit, Caminiti was on a dangerous path that ruined many careers and lives. Astros infield coach Matt Galante told the New York Daily News in 2004, We talked about alcohol a lot in the beginning. A lot of the guys helped him by being with him, making sure he's going out and not indulging too much. Following the 1993 season, he had been confronted by Jeff Bagwell, who expressed his own concern over Ken's drinking. I resented it. I wanted to kill him, Caminiti said. Ken's mother tried to warn him that alcoholism ran in the family. It had claimed the life of her brother, and she was worried about her son. I never thought I had a problem, but everyone else did, Ken said. Finally, he was ready to take on those problems. After the season, Ken stayed sober for three weeks. Exactly what happened after that is somewhat of a question, as there are two very different versions of the story that persist to this day. The first is that Caminiti remained sober until he attended Gerald Young's wedding in Pittsburgh in late October. 
Caminiti said in 1995, I got hammered three days in a row and said, nope, this ain't gonna work by myself. This version says that he immediately returned home to Houston and entered rehab. Ross Nohan of the Los Angeles Times painted a very different picture of events in a 1996 article, which take place in Houston. Nohan wrote, after having driven drunk at high speeds on the freeway, tears streaming down his face, not caring if he lived or died, he somehow found himself back in his own driveway. He decided at that moment that he'd had it with years of drinking and a vicious cycle of painkillers. Those two versions of Caminiti's epiphany appear continuously in articles written throughout the years. No article seems to mention both. They talk about either the wedding or speeding through the streets of Houston. But something definitely happened at Gerald Young's wedding, as we have multiple quotes from Ken about it, but we don't know exactly what. For all we know, both events could have happened. Like many questions around Ken's life, we just don't have a clear answer. What we do know is that Ken checked himself into a rehab clinic run by former NBA player and recovering cocaine addict John Lucas. After only 16 days, he walked out a sober man. You know what I learned in rehab, Ken said years later? I learned that I was tough without alcohol. Now, I've grown into tough. I mean, I went from an 11-year-old punk to a 35-year-old adult man in 16 days of rehab. Ken's father, Lee, said that he couldn't be prouder of Ken for getting help in fighting his disease. While Ken was in rehab and going through the beginning phase of his recovery, Chris Donnell sat in for him in negotiation meetings with the MLB owners. You know, I had to listen to Bud Selig talk about how he was losing millions of dollars and this and that. And so it was like, you know, these, these guys who own these teams, they don't become multimillionaires on accident. You know, if, if your team's losing all this money, you wouldn't keep the team. It was an educational experience for Donnells, but it was also disappointing for him that it came because of Ken's problems. Number one, I was proud of him for getting help if he felt like he needed it, but I, I never really saw it. The fact that, you know, he went and got help, that was, you know, if he felt like he needed it, then awesome. But he came back, you know, 94 and raring to go. Another important development in the 1993 offseason for Caminiti was that he greatly intensified his weightlifting routine. He was always someone who was in the gym, but he elevated that to the next level during this offseason, inspired by Jeff Bagwell's success through lifting. When he returned for the 94 season, Ken was visibly larger and stronger. The transformation, though, was not as striking as the one seen in upcoming years. And it's very possible that these results could have been delivered with clean living and an improved lifting routine, and not necessarily because of steroids. Houston's years-long rebuilding finally bore fruit in 1994. Playing in the newly created National League Central, the Astros no longer had to deal with the Dodgers, Braves, or Giants as division rivals. And with the advent of the wild card, failing to win the division could still result in a playoff berth. The infield of Bagwell, Biggio, Caminiti, and shortstop Andujar Cedeno was touted as one of the best in baseball and the best in franchise history. For the first time as a professional, Caminiti was clean and sober, and on opening day, he delivered a walk-off win for the Houston Astros. Frank's one to left center. Let's see if he can get it in there for extra bases. It's off the wall. Finley scoring. Bagwell is coming home with a winning round. And the Astros have won it. Six to five. Ken Caminiti in his sixth straight.
Things continued breaking Caminiti's way on the field in 94, and at age 31, he was named an All-Star for the first time in his career. He was having the best offensive season of his life, and his defensive numbers were the best he'd put up since 89. It's hard to play when you're foggy, Caminiti reflected in early 1995. I can honestly say I did my best and worked hard when I was in there, but when you're not giving yourself 100% inside, when you're feeling a little down, it's not the way. Baseball's such a mental game, getting the right pitches to hit in the right zone. I swung at a lot of bad pitches, just not concentrating. It's hard to concentrate when you're not getting your sleep. I give that most of the credit. How I reacted on and off the field last year. I gave myself a chance. About the only thing not going smoothly for the Astros in 1994 was new manager Terry Collins. As calm, mellow, and laid back as Art Howe was, Terry Collins was intense, fiery, and high-strung. It was an abrupt transition for the Houston players, and it took a while for them to accept his style. Chris Donalds played for both Howe and Collins in Houston. It's, it didn't match right away with in, in Houston just because we were pretty much, like I said, a pretty low-key. It, it took a while for everybody to kind of get used to one another, I'll mm -hmm. say. You know, and I think in a long, you know, in a, in a year, after about a year or so, I think everybody kind of just knew that Terry's Terry, you know, he's, 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 it's, it wasn't done out of malice or angst or anything like that. He's just a high strung guy. I remember there was a play, I can't remember who we were playing, but you know, it was an infield pop up and one you know, where three guys come around and it drops and he just blew up in the dugout. Like what, the, you know, what is going on? How do we not catch this? And Ken got back in the dugout and kind of stood right behind him. And I think Terry felt that he was there and I don't know what Ken would have done, but Ken was not happy because he kind of felt like Terry showed him up. You know, Houston's dugouts were pretty small and the fans were right there and you could hear him hemming and hawing over, you know, this ball that dropped. And Ken, to his credit, didn't do anything, but he stood right behind him. And I think the message was sent that, you know, just, just leave us alone. You know, things are going to happen. It wasn't intentional and, you know, let it go. Despite the managerial friction, the Astros were playing well. And on August 12th, 1994, they sat 66 and 49 a half game back to the Cincinnati Reds for first in the NL Central. Caminiti had already set a new career high in home runs with 18, and his 75 RBIs matched what he had produced in the entire 1993 season. His batting average was a solid 283, and his on-base percentage and slugging percentage were both the best of his career. His 3.8 wins above replacement was 12th in the National League and was second best among NL third basemen behind only Matt Williams. A sober, focused Caminiti had become one of the best all-around players in baseball and was on pace to set career highs in every single offensive category. Houston was in a position to make the playoffs for the first time since 1986, but that came to a screeching halt. Some will say, the owners are exactly where they plan to do, that they had a plan, and the plan began with taking you out as commissioner. Well, I think and that's, that's right. I think that's correct. What do you mean? Well, I think that um, the owners really wanted to confront the union, and they didn't want a commissioner who might interfere and use his powers, either legal powers or persuasive powers, and so I think this was uh, a function of the fight in 90 where I did get involved and did help to get things resolved and I think after that the owner said uh, 
we really want to have the confrontation and we want to control it ourselves. I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, the one thing you don't want is a commissioner there who might uh, interfere. So I think it was planned and I think it is inevitable. And I think the good thing is it will end. It will eventually uh, go by the boards. And will I it end with the union being, you know, certainly defeated? But Well, you know, Charlie, I think one of the problems is that we tend to see things in terms of wins and losses, and in baseball that's appropriate. There's no winner here. That's former baseball commissioner Faye Vincent on the Charlie Rose Show in early 1995. The root causes of the 1994 strike are the same as the 85 strike and the 90 lockout. Owners wanted arbitration reform and namely a salary cap. Only this time, the owners had one of their own in the commissioner's chair and not an outsider, and they were hell-bent on getting their way. Milwaukee Brewers owner Bud Selig and White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf led a coup among baseball owners who forced Faye Vincent to resign as commissioner in 1992. They were upset with Vincent over his handling of the 1990 lockout and felt he didn't represent their interests and their interests only. After Vincent resigned, Selig was named acting commissioner and promised to push for revenue sharing and a salary cap, which owners claimed were inextricably linked. The 94 season began with no CBA in place and negotiations dragged on into the summer. On June 14, 1994, the nation buzzed about the news of O.J. Simpson's arrest just one day prior. On that day, Major League Baseball owners unveiled their proposal to the public. They wanted a restricted free agency system akin to what the NBA and the NFL currently have and, of course, a salary cap. The players' union rejected the offer, and as late July approached, with still no agreement in place, the union set an August 12th strike date. In response, on August 1st, the owners withheld a nearly $8 million payment to the players' pension fund, leading Mike Mussina of the Baltimore Orioles to say, how do we sit down at the negotiating table with people who treat us like this? The war was on. There was things that were done and said that we didn't feel like were done in very good faith on their part. And we felt like it was really, that was our only way to stick up for ourselves. And, you know, we, we all paid a price for it, um, you know, salary-wise and, you know, losing out on some of the seasons we had going. Um, but I think it, we, a lot of the players felt like it was our turn to sacrifice. You know, guys before us had done it. Um, and nobody wants to. It, it's, it was, you know, it, it hurt the game, but... We had no doubt the game would come back stronger than it ever has, and it, you know, obviously, over the course of the years, it's it's proved that to be a fact. So, um, it, it was just a different time. I mean, we had Donald Fear doing our stuff, and he just, you know, was a he was a Marvin Miller protege, and uh, he would not let us be pushed around. The August 12th deadline passed without an agreement in place, and players walked off the job. People first thought the work stoppage would be short, like in 1985, but it stretched on. And eventually, the rest of the season, including the World Series, was canceled. Neither Bud Selig nor Donald Fair would give an inch on their side, and both were content to halt the sport. Owners believed that the lost salaries to the players would break the union, but Fair was able to maintain solidarity in his ranks. Once again, former Commissioner Faye Vincent. I think the owners really don't understand how much of a partnership has to be formed. Uh, I mean, even Hollywood, where I spent some time understands that uh, the talent is everything. The only reason you and I go to a movie is to see Dustin Hoffman. Uh, 
uh, we don't go because just saw him in outbreak yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, a nice warner movie yeah uh, right no, I think that uh, the owners have misunderstood how important it is to make the new deal, the new molecule, as I call it, with the players. And the players uh, and their leadership don't see any reason to change things. Um, they've been doing well. They're undefeated. Uh, and uh, they don't see the reason to come together and make this new uh, arrangement. And they don't trust the owners because they think the owners have cheated them uh, in the past uh, with collusion. In late November, Owners announced they were going ahead with the salary cap anyway. They attempted to break the union by announcing that they were going to bring in replacement players for 1995. Only one team owner, Peter Angelos of the Baltimore Orioles, refused to bring in replacement players for spring training. The union filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board for unfair business practices in response. As the strike broiled on in early December, Bob Watson approached Caminiti about restructuring his contract. Watson realized that Houston was going to be more than $1.6 million over their proposed salary cap for 1995. Caminiti was set to make $4.35 million, and the Astros asked him to take a cut down to $2.5 million as part of a long-term contract extension. Ken rejected that offer. He wanted to play out his contract. Caminiti told reporters, I said, that doesn't sound in my best interests. I'd wish you leave me alone. Let me play out my final year. We have a good team here. After years of trade rumors, internal competition, and the drafting of Phil Nevin first overall, it's easy to see why Caminiti was not open to taking a huge pay cut. Being the Astros player rep to the union, he saw the owner's tactics in trying to undercut the players. He felt no loyalty coming from the Astros organization so it's understandable that he felt no responsibility to pledge his. Negotiations between the owners and players broke down on December 14th, and the next day, owners declared an impasse and voted 25-3 to 3 to officially impose a salary cap. Watson now badly needed to trim payroll to get under the salary cap, and called around baseball trying to trade Ken. The St. Louis Cardinals were looking for third base upgrade, and offered hard-hitting outfielder Mark Witten straight up for Caminiti. But that wouldn't do. Watson needed to shed more money to get under the salary cap, and he figured if he could do it all in one trade, then all the better. Meanwhile, in California, San Diego Padres owner Tom Werner was getting out of baseball. On December 21, 1994, he finalized a sale of the team to Houston entrepreneur John Moores. Werner had trimmed payroll in recent years, and now Moores was willing to spend. One week later, the Astros and Padres pulled off the biggest trade in baseball since 1957, featuring 12 players changing sides. Houston acquired outfielders Derek Bell and Phil Plantier, pitchers Doug Brocale and Pedro Martinez, the lefty, not the future Hall of Famer, and shortstop Ricky Gutierrez, along with third baseman Craig Shipley. San Diego received Andujar Cedeno, Steve Finley, first base prospect Roberto Pettigini, pitcher Brian Williams, a player to be named later, and Ken Caminiti. When the trade was made, Phil Plantier was playing winter ball in Mexico, just trying to stay sharp during the strike, and the Padres called him and asked him to come back home. I was surprised by the trade because I was coming off of two years prior, a pretty good year, the year before. Um, good, I was productive while I was healthy. Um, but you could also see the Padres were starting to get themselves into position to compete and contend. And 
and they needed to move some pieces around and fill some holes. And in order to do that, you got to trade some people away. The trade took five and a half million dollars off of Houston's 1995 payroll, and the team got comfortably under the salary cap. The Astros felt that Phil Nevin was ready to step in and replace Caminiti at third base. But Nevin started the year in the minor leagues. When he was called up, he struggled in the majors. He cursed out manager Terry Collins and GM Bob Watson when they informed him he was going back down to the minors. And the Astros eventually traded Nevin to the Detroit Tigers in August, happy to be rid of him. Meanwhile, San Diego had a good feeling about Caminiti's potential. With one scout offering a very blunt assessment, we figured he wasn't a drunk anymore. Brad Osmus was a young catcher for San Diego at the time of the trade. Uh, I think my first thought was, wow, like this is a big deal. This is a, a big trade. You know, trades are always a little bittersweet because you're losing teammates and friends, but you're gaining new ones. Uh, but I, we certainly felt like we were gain, gaining some really talented baseball people. We just didn't know the people themselves. Tony Gwynn celebrated the trade as a win for the Padres. Every year, you are looking for something to get you excited of spring training. My motivation came on December 28, 1994. Gwynn spent his whole career in San Diego and witnessed the dismantling of the club in 1993 and 1994. As part of Werner's budget-conscious ownership, the Padres shipped out baseball superstar Fred McGriff and all-stars Benito Santiago, Gary Sheffield, Tony Fernandez and Randy Myers in a two-year span, while finishing in last place in the NL West in both years. At just $13.2 million, San Diego had the lowest payroll in baseball in 1994. Scott Livingstone was San Diego's starting third baseman for most of the 94 season. I mean, I tell you what, it really loaded up our team. Uh, I mean, when we get Steve Finley, our center fielder, uh, Cammy, obviously. I mean, I was a little disappointed because of I, that was my opportunity as I said earlier to show myself and play and and get a lot of playing time at third base and and then they bring over Caminetti and I was disappointed but then I just dealt with it and said okay I'll just be the best backup utility player that I can be but then once I met Ken it's like I wasn't I wasn't upset at all the guy's amazing uh, he, he was awesome, and you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that didn't, didn't like it. Chris Donalds remembers the trade's impact on the Houston clubhouse. I had two sides of it. The personal side of it was I was disappointed because he was, I consider him to be a good friend. Um, professionally, I thought it was something great for him because, I mean, he obviously looked at the team that he went over to, you know, and, and Finns was the same way. It definitely left a void, I will say. Um, you know, we had other guys that tried to try to fill the void including myself but there's only one Ken so um, you know we did what we could as players nobody was there to try to take his place but his attitude and toughness was something that uh, you know as a baseball player it's kind of tough to replace he he brought a, uh, a leader's mentality but by example not by voicing anything he didn't he didn't talk a whole lot on the field but he definitely showed you know, what he, what he expected of everybody else. As the strike rolled on into January, five bills were introduced in Congress to end the strike. And on January 26th, President Bill Clinton ordered players and owners to resume negotiations and reach an agreement by February 6th. Representatives from both sides met in the West Wing of the White House to try to broker a deal, but none was reached. 
Washington legislators threatened to review MLB's antitrust exemption if there was not a resolution. That deadline came and went without an agreement, but the players won a major victory. NLRB General Counsel Fred Feinstein sided with the MLBPA and issued an unfair labor practices complaint against the owners on February 6th. The owner's way out of the complaint was to reinstate the terms of the old CBA. They decided to do so, and with it, the salary cap was dead. On February 8th, owners struck back. They countered the NLRB ruling by stating that players no longer could negotiate free agent contracts with individual teams, only with MLB's Player Relations Committee, which was chaired by none other than Bud Selig. They also told the union that they were eliminating arbitration and were going to go ahead with replacement players anyway. All of this violated the agreement they had just made two days before, but baseball owners knew that this set the clock back a few weeks and bought them extra time. The MLBPA filed another complaint with the NLRB in response. In March, Feinstein and the NLRB ruled in favor of the players and prohibited owners from using replacement players in games. Players quickly filed an injunction in federal court and voted internally to end the strike and return to work if the injunction was granted. On March 31, 1995, future Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor sided with the players and granted the injunction. The owners appealed the decision and were swiftly denied. On April 2nd, after 232 days, players voted to return to work and officially end the strike. Baseball returned in 1995 without a salary cap, revenue sharing, or a collective bargaining agreement in place. And Ken Caminiti was a San Diego Padre. On the next episode of Secondary Lead, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti. Ken flourishes into a superstar in San Diego. His team makes the playoffs for the first time in his career. And Snickers candy bars gain a most valuable spokesman. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or a review. And spread the word by telling a friend. Follow us at Secondary Lead on Twitter and Instagram. Like our Facebook page and check out show extras on YouTube. Music is courtesy of PurplePlanet.com and the YouTube Audio Library. Our theme was written and performed by Jim Montgomery and Chris Cottrell. I'm your host, Joe Vasile. Thanks for listening.